Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. Hi. I'm doing a podcast for the MSU Museum about surveillance. Would you be willing to answer a few questions? Um, sure. Okay, so let's start with, how do you feel about surveillance? About surveillance? Yeah. I feel like it's pretty good, I guess. I don't really go to the museum that much, just because it's been closed with COVID. But I feel like all MSU surveillance is actually like really good. Um, I think it's important to have good surveillance like on our community so that if anything bad were to happen, like there's something to account for that. I think that in moderation, it could be a good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing. So what do you think is the, bad, the baddest thing about surveillance? I think that it can get a lot into people's personal lives that they maybe don't want to share with other people. And what do you think is the best thing about surveillance? I think the best thing about surveillance is probably... You know, like if the police are doing an investigation on someone that did something bad, I think it gives us the quickest answers. Do you ever feel like you're being watched? Uh, yeah, 100% of the time. Every part of campus uh, we go to, there's surveillance somewhere or the other. So yeah, we are being watched 100% of the time. It's funny, I just saw a camera. I think uh, it's good to an extent. I don't think that they should like... Like, I think it's good. If somebody steals something, we have surveillance cameras to, like, check where they went and everything. But, like, as far as, like, invasion of privacy and, like, stuff like that, I don't think that's too good. But, I mean, I, I don't think about it too much, honestly. I mean, if they want to watch me do my homework and stare at my camera for hours, and that's fine. Do you have any worries about surveillance? If there's, like, if it's not working, then I feel like that should be addressed immediately. Do you have any worries about surveillance? I mean, for the future, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I've read books that, like, they use surveillance in bad ways and, like, make sure people aren't talking bad about, like, whoever's in charge, you know what I mean? So I think it could, I think it could be bad, but I think as of right now, it's not the worst thing ever. Hey, everyone, I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. And this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. So over the course of the podcast, we talked a lot about surveillance and its various systems, but today we're gonna be talking about surveillance infrastructure. And that's the type of surveillance that we see in our built environment. So as we walk down the street, the various cameras that we see are the types of things that we consider surveillance that is a part of a built environment. We might all agree that the reasons cities install surveillance infrastructure are not always bad, but the potential outcomes are where the problem lies. When you're out in public, how many cameras do you think are watching you? Do you know where your image is going? Who owns it? What they do with it? The answer is probably no. And that's the problem we're going to talk about today. We'll talk to Kelsey Finch, Senior Counsel for the Future of Privacy Forum, about policies, safeguards, and transparency with city surveillance programs and technology. But first, Tom Perkins investigates the ins and outs of Hamtramck's new parking meter system one which includes cameras on around 600 parking meters. Just uh, punched in my parking space number, 65. And throw in 25 cents. 
all down Joseph Campo, which is the main business corridor in Hamtramck, which is the densest city in Michigan, there are these sort of futuristic-looking holes that are, are popping out of the ground every 20 feet or so, and those are the uh, new parking meters. If you get up close to them, you can see the cameras uh, pointing out. If you really get up close and look in these little black bands that are at the top of, of each pole, you can see the cameras pointing out. Sometime during the night of August 12, 2021, someone plowed their vehicle into a parked car on Joseph Campo, Hamtramck's main downtown street. Whoever did it took off. The busted-up car belonged to a Hamtramck resident who discovered it the next morning. The resident declined to use his name for this story, so we'll call him Mel. Mel filed a police report, but soon learned that a camera might have caught the whole thing. Just days earlier, Hamtramck installed parking meters equipped with cameras. If someone doesn't pay the meter, the car's owner gets a ticket in the mail, and the photo of their license plate is the evidence. Days after the accident, Mel got a surprise visit. It was an employee of Municipal Parking Services, the company that the city of Hamtramck contracts with for their new meters. Next morning, I went outside, you know, to assess the damage. Representative from the company that operates uh, parking meters stopped by, and uh, he was asking questions, you know, what happened. So Mel told the company about the hit and run. He said, you know, that he can help me, you know, uh, because they have a video uh, from each uh, post, uh, from parking post, which was uh, really something new to me because uh, when they were installing the parking meters, they told me that they're going to install just a camera that's going to capture just still images of the license plate. And that was really a surprise, you know, to learn that someone is actually, you know, the recording this, you know, all the time. Mel isn't alone in his surprise. It turns out that very few people in Hamtramck seem to know the meters covering 647 parking spaces may be recording their movements 24-7. That's a lot of cameras, so I set out to try to get a few questions answered. Are the cameras really recording video? If so, how is that footage stored and used? Who has access to it? In the private company that owns and installs the meters, Minnesota-based Municipal Parking Services, or MPS, is shielded from public scrutiny. What does it do with the data and images it collects? All reasonable questions, but after weeks of asking around, I only got answers to some, conflicting responses for others, and no response from the company. Nearly everyone I've talked to outside of City Hall hates the new meters. Business owners say they deter customers and have even placed signs in shop windows that read, parking meters are killing our businesses. Residents don't like the high fees and not being able to make a quick stop without risking a ticket. However, in a city that regularly teeters on the brink of bankruptcy, city officials say they welcome the revenue stream. City manager Kathy Anger says people rarely paid for parking before, and now they do. And I believe that our residents are learning um, what compliance means. While the city is happy with the influx of cash, parking enforcement is only one part of the revenue stream for MPS. The company focuses on devices that monitor parking areas and streets. It even offers facial recognition software as one of its products, though not in Hamtramck. On their website and online promotional videos, MPS really pushes their parking meters as a public safety tool. The Century Meter cares about your safety. Did you hear the story about the parking meter that fights crime, deters purse snatchers, assists with the investigation of a bank robbery? Well, you have now. 
Wouldn't it be nice to put a virtual police officer every 40 feet on your sidewalks? Not really, according to Hamtramckins I've talked to. On top of that, many residents have no idea these meters are capable of that kind of surveillance. To be quite honest with you, I was shocked. That's state rep Abraham Ayash, who despite being plugged into what's going on in his district, didn't know about the video component until I told him. And I think it's particularly frustrating and concerning because it's a community of, Im of immigrants who probably don't know um, that there are cameras where they park their, their cars. At this point in my reporting, I didn't know for sure whether or not we had a battalion of virtual cops on our sidewalks. So I'm back to the question, do the police use the footage to investigate crimes? Yes, they do. A Hamtramck police officer told me when I called to ask about getting video of the hit and run. That left me wondering if only police have access. Or can the public get a hold of the images? So in December, I did an experiment. I stood in a parking spot and waved at a parking meter camera. I'm now waving to uh, parking meter number 70 at 1.51 p.m. on December 8th. Let's see what we can get. Then I tried to obtain the footage through a Freedom of Information Act request. A city official said they would normally be available, but the meters and cameras were off for the city's annual holiday parking reprieve, so I couldn't get them. Another dead end. Maybe I can't get the images right now, but there has to be a privacy policy, right? Wrong. City Council approved the cameras in 2020, and I figured those issues came up. I listened to recordings of three council discussions on the meters from late 2019 and early 2020, but council members barely asked about privacy. I think at this point in time, we need to move uh, our community into the 21st century. In that same council meeting, a representative from MPS says the parking meters do record video, but the city would have to pay extra to store the footage and access it later for investigations. All that data goes over there very quickly if the city doesn't want it. So if you want it, you got it. If you don't want it, it goes away. It's hard to hear in the recording, but what he says is, all that data is overwritten quickly if the city doesn't want it. If you want it, you got it. If you don't want it, then it goes away. That raises a new question. Was Hamtramck paying to store footage? If not, how soon does the video go away? And I still had no answers about privacy. I called the police chief for clarification. Three times. No response. I contacted MPS multiple times. No response. Then I spoke with former city council member Carrie Beth Lasley. She wasn't on council when the meters were approved, so she didn't have answers. But she said she opposes the cameras. I'm concerned about privacy issues. Mm -hmm. Concerned about who has access. This does provide a lot of power to somebody if they wanted to use it in a um, malicious way. She wasn't surprised I was having trouble getting answers from the council meetings. This is a pretty dramatic change to make without a whole lot of thought and a whole lot of reading and a whole lot of making sure that we know who we're doing business with. I figured the answers to the remaining questions were likely in the contract between the city and MPS. So I checked the city council's publicly available documents for the contract, but it wasn't there. That seemed odd. It appeared much of downtown suddenly had cameras pointed at it, and the details of that plan weren't even included in the city council packet. Fortunately, Leslie had a copy of the contract, so she shared it with me. Unfortunately, like everything else, the contract answered some questions, but raised more. It states that MPS can share depersonalized data with third parties. 
Who does NPS share it with? And who at City Hall has access? What happens if the FBI wants to take a look at that data? And the biggest unknown, is the city paying for NPS to store video images? If not, how long is NPS keeping the footage of Hamtramckins on its servers? The contract did not say. That seemed crazy, but at this point, I had talked with former council members, city residents, a police officer, listened to three city council meeting recordings, and read the contract, but I still didn't know what exactly was going on. It became evident that only one person could or would be able to fill me in. City Manager Kathy Anger. In an initial phone call, Anger said the cameras aren't used as an investigative tool. When I pointed out that an officer told me they were for the hit and run, she said the images were available because the crime occurred in the parking spot. She added that the cameras might be used to help investigate a major crime, like a bank robbery. She also said the cameras don't collect video. They collect a series of still images. But technically, video is a series of still images, and the meter company refers to it as video. When we talked again, Anger had clarifications. What you described to me about video and monitoring uh, sidewalk activity, no, absolutely not. If there was a crime, then police could look at still images of license plates in the area, she added, but... We didn't purchase a component that would show the storefronts or pedestrians or be that big brother component. Um, We simply purchased the system or buying into the system that is to monitor the parking sessions. And the only people who have access to still images are Anger, the city's public safety liaison, and police officers. But wait, what about the police officer who told me they used the meter's video footage? We know that there's not video at all. There's not video. It's still pictures. So not sure who you spoke to, but... They were misinformed. Anger asked for the officer's name, but I didn't have it. So she directly questioned my reporting skills. Touche. But that's also partly why I called the chief three times to ask for clarification, tried contacting the company, and ultimately ended up on the phone with her. It seems that many in the city might agree that Anger and the Hamtramck police are doing the right thing by not paying to access video and should be applauded for that. Still, the cameras and infrastructure are in place. And city officials could later pay for more of the options offered by MPS. After all, the city did decide to put video surveillance cameras in one of the parks where many of the town's Muslim residents gather. Though, as with the meters, it had the support of most Muslim city council members. Surveillance is a sensitive issue here. Hamtramck is home to a majority Muslim population, and the relationship between Muslim residents and Hamtramck police has at times been strained. There is a precedent. This is not some boogeyman that we are concocting. That's state rep Bayash again. People in this community were literally profiled and harassed and targeted um, because of Islamophobia and plenty of other reasons, and we have to make sure that they're protected. Like other residents I spoke with, Bayash still sees the placement of video cameras in Hamtramck as a step in the wrong direction. After 9-11, Muslim communities in the U.S. were targeted, harassed, and interrogated by law enforcement agencies. This creeping uh, surveillance that happens, uh, whether we surf the web, we use Facebook, um, and, and walking down the street now, that, that should raise a lot of concerns. And, and I think people should always know uh, when they are being tracked, uh, how they're being tracked, right. and, and what the purpose is. And I think the problem here right now is, you know, from what I understand, there is no clear understanding of how or what or if this data is stored and and who it can be sent to. 
you know, dare I say, this, this could lead to techno-fascism. Despite all my investigating, some things still aren't clear. It seems that the cameras are shooting video, and footage may be stored by MPS for some time before it's deleted, though Hamtramck isn't paying for that at the moment. But with a private company owning the parking meter footage and no clear privacy policy, Hamtramckans are left wondering who's watching them downtown. That was Tom Perkins reporting. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Now we're going to talk with Kelsey Finch, Senior Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. She's going to tell us about the state of privacy policies and transparency in U.S. cities, specifically when it comes to surveillance infrastructure. Yeah, sure. So thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am Kelsey Finch. I'm senior counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, For those who don't know us, FPF is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit. Our mission is to advance responsible data practices for emerging technologies. Uh, And at FPF, for the last seven or eight years, I have run our Smart and Connected Communities project. So uh, that has included things like standing up a peer network of local government officials who are working on data privacy issues day to day uh, that we call the Civic Privacy Leaders Network and trying to help folks advance fair and transparent practices in local government. Here at the Tract and Trace podcast, we've been exploring the many ways that the surveillance infrastructures is implemented and impacting cities all across the country, you know, and there are four legitimate reasons like public safety, parking enforcement, and school safety. But, you know, with your expertise, is surveillance technology and infrastructure in our cities inevitable? It's a, that's actually a great framing for it. it. It doesn't seem like it's inevitable. The technologies themselves, I think, as you say, do have the potential to do important things. We probably do want them in some capacity. It's a question of how do we set that against the protection of privacy for individuals, for communities, for other civil rights and civil liberties. So how do we figure out how to uh, maximize the benefits of these technologies while minimizing the risks they pose to a variety of folks coming from different places with different expectations, different preferences, uh, and potentially different impacts in their day-to-day lives. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can put safeguards into place. We can make these tools more transparent. We can make local government more accountable. So I think the surveillance uh, sort of state aspect of it is perhaps not inevitable, but the technologies themselves, I think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If they can help us you know, make our public services more efficient and more effective. They can help make our communities more livable and equitable and sustainable as we're facing sort of enormous changes as a country. So would you say that there are like any positive examples or models that are currently being implemented or in use around the country? I can speak better to the privacy infrastructure, which I actually think is critical for enabling that sort of world of effective technology and data use and hopefully trying to steer us away from some of the scarier concerns around surveillance technologies. But I can point to cities like Seattle and Oakland and Santa Clara County, uh, where we actually have fairly robust privacy programs. They have chief privacy officers, or in the case of Oakland, a independent privacy advisory commission. They have working groups 
with independent academics and advocates and members of the community who are engaging in part of these conversations. They have surveillance technology ordinances that set particular rules around how technology, surveillance technologies particularly, can be acquired and deployed. That includes proactive concerns about what are the potential impacts for things like privacy, equity, civil liberties. What are the use policies that we need to have in place? How do we limit access? How do we protect the data? How do we make sure that it's only being used for the things that we really think are critically important? It's not being, you know, just anything that somebody can think of. We see annual reporting as part of those systems, which is great for thinking about efficacy and coming back to technologies, which may change over time. I can also point to cities like Boston and Portland, which are, I think, earlier in that process, but are actively standing up surveillance ordinances, are thinking about things like banning the use of facial recognition technologies, or thinking about the integration of school safety and surveillance surveillance technologies more generally across the city, and all of whom are starting to do sort of both formal and informal things to create, as I said, a sort of infrastructure of privacy and infrastructure of trust and transparency to try to help uh, get ahead of some of these concerns. And you mentioned uh, transparency. Can you speak to why transparency of process is so important when implementing surveillance infrastructure? Transparency is essential to all of this because without transparency, you're not going to have trust. And we already have a severe lack of trust in how our government handles data and technology. I think there is um, certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen a real uptick in public awareness and attention to the potential harms that can come about if we are not paying attention to how we're using technology, if nobody is understanding what its real impacts and um, implementation look like. We need transparency to know what's going on, to be able to hold the government accountable, right? And I think that's a key part of this is that it's it's an essential part of due process. It's built into our constitution for how we want to. We have the Fourth Amendment and we've got state constitutions with similar or even stronger protections for uh, individual privacy. And I think really important to think about transparency as fundamental piece of that, but not the only piece of that. It's one thing to be transparent. It's sort of a necessary precondition, but you still have to have good practices after that. You still have to change if things aren't working. You have to be accountable to uh, the public if the decisions uh, and sort of that trade-off between data and technology and you know various services against potential impacts on privacy and other rights isn't actually a fair and equitable trade-off. Yeah, that's really helpful in understanding the position of like transparency in the scope of surveillance. So we know that there are a gamut of positive reasons that the technology should not be ignored. And you've cited ways in like places in the U.S. where there is an ethical use or at least a, a demonstration of wanting to be ethical while using surveillance technologies. Uh, my question is, what boundaries should local governments be putting in place to protect their citizens' privacy? In part, it's going to depend on the community. And I think this is an interesting part of thinking about privacy at the local level and thinking about surveillance technologies is that I can very well see that privacy is something that's very subjective, right? Your expectations of privacy and where you're going to draw those lines and what trade-offs between access to services and convenient services against protection of privacy you're willing to make is going to be really different for every person. It's also going to be different within communities because surveillance technologies, unfortunately, 
tend not to be rolled out in proportionate and equitable ways. There is often disproportionate surveillance of poor communities, of vulnerable communities, of marginalized communities. And so when we're thinking about what are the right safeguards to put in place, what are whether any particular technology is even appropriate to roll out in your community, it's going to need to be grounded first and foremost in what does the community itself want? How do we engage the public in meaningful and inclusive ways in decision-making about these technologies is, I think, uh, just an, an essential part of it. And that's often a very challenging part of it because trying to get people up the learning curve so they can make informed choices, so they can understand how the technology works is really challenging. And that's not just for members of the public. That's the elected officials who are saying whether or not to move forward with a particular technology. That's the folks who are on the other side of the table um, from a vendor who is trying to sell them something. One of the key challenges is that lack of digital literacy throughout um, our society around some of these issues. We're getting more and more expertise. Cities are learning to flex those muscles. They're putting contractual safeguards into place in their dealings with private companies or the other ways that they are um, acquiring technologies. And I think procurement safeguards are a key part of, part of this. We actually see that's a really strong point of intervention is how technologies come into the city can be a really strong way to put privacy safeguards in the front end. Because if you wait until after something is all, all the way built or all the way deployed, you're going to have a really hard time getting effective privacy safeguards in there. And so trying to think about ways to increase visibility, increase opportunities for technical safeguards, contractual safeguards, legal safeguards, I think all of these are the kinds of things that I think about when giving advice to cities on how to do better on privacy, how to um, roll out potential surveillance technologies in more ethical or equitable ways. So one of the issues that we kind of find ourselves with in the case of this episode is with Hamtramck and their rolled out parking meter program, which is a surveillance program of their highly coveted uh, parking spots in that small city. And there's this issue of like this rollout that happened without citizens' input. And there's some outcry for wanting to have public forum around that. So what can be done when there's been surveillance technologies rolled out for whatever reason and there hasn't been any citizen input? It's a great question. And it's, I think, probably the more common situation across the country. Uh, there's places that we're, we're building best practice on how to do that kind of engagement up front. But I think probably still in most communities, uh, it is the case that technologies are are not necessarily getting a full and public vetting before they are implemented or, or deployed somewhere. I, I think great opportunity for ideally, ideally it would have happened already, but it's never too late to have those conversations. You can bring folks to the table. You can have community hearings and meetings and educational opportunities uh, to one, make sure that folks understand what's actually going on because often there can be a um, perception of greater privacy risk than the reality in part because these technologies are so little are so um, misunderstood and good to bring in perhaps outside experts, independent experts who can Think about what the actual scope of um, impact will be. Uh, you can have conversations with the community, and you should have conversations with the community members about whether they, how they think about this, that you may be locked into a contract, but at some point it will come up for renewal or there will be opportunities to um, rethink the terms, and that's a good moment to engage. Um, I think there are 
probably going to be opportunities to do additional reporting on the efficacy of these technologies. Are they actually doing what we bought them to do? Are they having unintended consequences? And what are those? And how do we address those? And to make that a much more collaborative conversation. This is a great way to engage with community organizations, any local nonprofits, local universities can all be great partners as you're working through this. In addition to uh, making sure there's room for voices from very diverse places within the community. When cameras are installed in, in public places, it sort of ends this idea of like public anonymity. What are some of the implications of that? And are there any safeguards or ways that cities can protect people's privacy in public? So I think there are interesting legal implications for this, right? We've seen a shift in, there's there's actually not much of a legal framework for local government surveillance, which is shocking to many people, but there's also not much of a, there's a patchwork legal framework for privacy generally in this country. We're seeing lots of potential legislative activity being discussed, but not much in terms of government reform compared to consumer privacy. So that's a good thing to pay attention to is that we might see a stronger movement on the consumer side of things. And people don't always pay attention to those divides. You sort of have an expectation that my privacy rights are the same everywhere I go. And that's often not the case. But we are seeing a shift in terms of, it used to be that you would have no privacy rights in public spaces. And that was just sort of the settled legal approach to things. Because surely if everybody else could see what you're doing, you should have no reasonable expectation of privacy in that space. But we're seeing cases from the Supreme Court in the last couple of years around the tracking of location data, particularly, which are starting to shift that balance. And think about what it means for your every movement to be tracked and recorded. And I think that's really starting to shift people's expectations. We're also starting to see technology that blurs that line between public and private, right? Data is flowing in ways that we we get a better picture of the inside of people's homes based on their electric usage information than we ever would have thought before. Um, you can tell what appliances people have based on the sort of energy flows. And that's information that the government surely would not have had access to in the past. Again, potential positive uses of that for things like identifying occupancy fraud and taxing people who aren't paying the appropriate level of taxes on perhaps an Airbnb or something else like like that. But there's also that brings in that sort of chilling effect that we're really concerned about because it does feel like you'd no longer have any privacy from the government um, or, or from the companies who might also have access to that data. And I think it's the chilling effects that are really the most concerning here. It's the idea that what would you stop doing if you could be tracked everywhere you go and everything that you do? And are the efficiency gains worth that potential chilling effect on completely legal, normal behaviors. We still want to be allowed to be people in our communities and not just, you know, targets of surveillance. You bring up such a, I think, a a critical point again in regards to, it's not necessarily about being watched. It's about the data that is collected and who has access to it. And so that brings up a really important question about those who create these surveillance technologies and who collect the data and who owns the data, you know, or shares ownership in the data. Is there any way to really trust the implementation of third-party created technologies when it comes to these private-public partnerships for public safety, for surveillance? 
part of this is paying attention to uh, the funding models for particular technologies. Oftentimes, the way that companies sweeten the deal is that they will provide these tools to cities who have very little funding already um, for reduced cost or for free as part of a revenue share, perhaps. Um, or things could just be donated, perhaps, from uh federal agency to a police department or things like that. And those are things that can often skirt around the normal procurement process. So we have even less transparency into what's going on there. But I think without transparency, we will never be able to get that level of trust. And I think this is also a place for accountability for, um, you know, having regular ways to audit what the third-party vendors are doing. This is something that we see actually also in private practice. This is a requirement for companies that are under FTC consent decrees, for example, um, is that sort of ability to, to monitor and to audit third-party and service providers. This is also a requirement under the GDPR. So that's the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, and that applies equally, interestingly, to public sector and to private sector agencies. So I think we're starting to see that becoming more and more of a best practice in the privacy space. It's just a matter of making sure that those best practices are brought into local government, are brought into the acquisition of surveillance technologies. One of the concerns that we've heard this season is about putting in surveillance infrastructure, like parking meters with cameras, but later finding out that those cameras can be used for something else like public safety. How easy or difficult is it for a city to repurpose surveillance technology? Oh, that's going to be really interesting. That depends on, in large part, what the rules and restrictions are for that city. I think this is often a question of, is there a legal framework that applies, whether self-imposed or from a state or at, at the state level, um, in terms of restrictions on how data is collected and used. For example, there may be uh, wiretap laws that apply to audio and some video information that's collected in certain ways. But that might not apply to uh, a stream of data about license plates collected or surveilled in public spaces. So you might end up with very uh, ad hoc and very changeable answers depending on what the actual data is, what the deal was with the uh, the company that's providing the service, what was actually negotiated in that contract. When we're thinking about reuse of data, reuse of technology, it depends on what sensors are built in. Oftentimes, cities can say, I actually don't want those audio sensors. Could you please design me a version of this that can't collect that data in the first place? And that kind of minimization is, I think, one of the strongest, that sort of privacy by design and by default. It's one of the strongest safeguards and the strongest protections that we can have is if you just design the technology in such a way that it can't be used inappropriately. Uh, we see this sometimes in uh, the design of cameras that use computer vision, for example. So they'll take a video feed and they'll apply an algorithm. And what it does is it scrubs out sort of the identifying information and it reduces it to accounts of perhaps you have one of these on a street corner looking for near miss collisions. And so it's going to say this person uh, who is riding a bike is now just a blue line. The bus is a gray box. This car is or this truck is a little blue circle. And you can see where they come near each other and how they approach each other without needing any of the details of the person's face or their body or what they were wearing or what was on the bus or on the, you know, the stickers on the car. And then you can build it such a way that that data is processed that transition that algorithm applies on the device. So it's never sent up to the cloud. It's never sent off-site to any other third party. And all you get are those little stick figures or all you get is a count of the number of pedestrians. I think that's a really powerful kind of technical safeguard that we can apply. We've heard a lot about the scale 
of policy connected to surveillance and how privacy and transparency is a major role in community comfort and also the ability to actually collaborate with our city governments and state governments in a more homogenous way based on the global scale of policies available to weigh against our own, what grade would you give U.S. cities if you had to in regards to the way we commit to uh, our surveillance policy and transparency? Oh, that's such a hard question. Uh, I think in part because expectations uh, and norms around privacy are actually really culturally inflected. And so what would get an A grade in the U.S. might not get an A grade, you know, in in Asia or in Africa or in South America or in, in any other countries. I think there are a couple of cities in the U.S. who I would give really strong marks to. Um, and I think that those are the ones who have more process, more maturity. They have perhaps a formal framework in place, privacy principles, privacy staff and budget, um, perhaps an ordinance or some kind of structured way for making decisions about what technology is used and how it's deployed and engaging the community at every step in that process. Uh, I think there's another set of cities um, that are really working on getting up to that point and would give them also very high marks in terms of putting in the work, but recognizing that nobody's going to get it perfect on day one. It's going to take time to build these skills and to, you know, build up this sort of muscle memory of how to do, um, you know, privacy and engagement and some of the more technical work here. But I think for the majority of the U.S., it's not even on the radar. I think that for most cities, um, there are so many other priorities, keeping the lights on, making sure that trash gets picked up in a timely way, that sort of attention to these issues of surveillance and data privacy uh, is really far lower on the list than it should be. Because the, the way that I think about privacy is similar to the brakes on a car, right? You think they're there, they're, they seem like they're going to stop you, but they actually enable you to go faster because you have control over your speed. And so my pitch to cities is that if they invest in privacy infrastructure and decision-making and data infrastructure, that's going to allow them to control the pace of innovation. They're going to be able to respond to situations in a much more thoughtful way than if they've installed something and they're reacting to community outrage. They're going to be much more thoughtful. They're going to be much more engaged if they're able to be proactive about it. So I don't even know that many of these cities get onto the grading sheet at all, unfortunately, um, while they, there isn't um, attention being paid. But I think once they recognize the issue, once they start to act, we actually see folks start to invest in privacy and move up that learning curve quite quickly, which is encouraging, um, but I think certainly it's still early days. That was Kelsey Finch. You can learn more about her work at the Future of Privacy Forum website, fpf.org. That's all for today. I hope this episode has given you some helpful information so that the next time your local city council is voting on new surveillance infrastructure, you can listen in that much closer or maybe even suggest a privacy ordinance. I'm Natasha T. Miller. And I'm Antoine Scott. Thank you for listening. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Tom Perkins and editing by David Lyons and David Weinberg. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery mediator team, Harrison Adams, Aliamela Vila Sanchez, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. 
Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU FCU.